My name is Stuart Holland. I'm one of the elders here. I'm going to be filling in for the next few weeks uh, during the rest of Ken's sabbatical, and he'll be back before the end of the month, so don't, don't lose heart. He's coming back. So. The last few weeks, we've been studying Galatians. Uh, we learned that it's probably one of the first letters that Paul wrote. His audience was the churches that he had helped start on his first missionary journey through southern Galatia, which is, is modern, part of modern-day Turkey. Uh, these churches were predominantly Gentile, so you can see how there might be a conflict there. We're, that's really what we're, we're going to be addressing. Um, he learned these churches had received bad guidance from Jewish leaders who were teaching legalism, basically that works were needed, obedience to the law to be saved. Grace wasn't enough. The finished work of Christ wasn't enough. So it's obviously a bad teaching. His response was he first defended his apostolic position, and now he's going to defend the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter clearly reveals that salvation and sanctification are by grace, and they don't include a works requirement. Now, my mother was the youngest of 11 children, so big family. Um, she was born in South Dakota during the Great Depression in 1929. In 1931, they lost their farm. They'd had a couple of years of crop failure due to the, the Dust Bowl drought that occurred. And um, they loaded up all the whole family on a car and a, a big old truck and drove to Texas where she had an uncle that was able to get her dad work. This difficult time was never talked about by her siblings. They didn't really want to talk about the, the financial decisions that their dad had made that led to them losing the farm. It just was something they, they didn't ever talk about. Our passage this morning is going to include a difficult topic, similar to the one, you know, not in meaning, but in magnitude, that Paul is going to have with Peter. He likely would have addressed this privately if he could have. But for reasons we're going to talk about, he had to address this publicly with Peter. And I'm sure it was a difficult time. I'm going to begin by reading our passage. It's Galatians 2, 11 through 21. And then I'll give you a time to pray silently for God to prepare your heart to receive the truth of his, his word in a way that transforms you and glorifies him. So I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, beginning with verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews 
acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray silently for God to prepare you this time for his glory. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you as our creator, our sustainer of life. You provide for us. We praise you for your, your grace that you poured out on us through your son, for the mercy, for your sovereignty. Father, you're holy and righteous, and eternal, uh, Lord, you're incomprehensible. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to dwell within us and to guide us as we study your word. And I pray that you would use your spirit now to reveal truth to each one of us, truth that would transform us, Father. We want to be more like your son, Father, for any that are here this morning that don't know Christ, I pray that your spirit would work to draw them to Jesus Christ. Reveal to them their need for redemption. And reveal to them the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to you except by him. Father, I pray that you would take my words and and use them for your glory now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
So Paul was originally born in Tarsus. Um, it's a Roman city in, in modern-day Turkey. But he moved to Jerusalem at some point to study under the rabbi Gamaliel. And then he was converted to Christianity on the road to Damascus. That story's recorded in Acts. I'm sure you've read it before. And he was called at that point to evangelize Gentiles. After he spent some time in Arabia, then he returned to his hometown of Tarsus, from which he ministered in that region. Now, one of the cities in that region was this city that we're going to read about called Antioch. It was a major city, it's now in modern-day Syria, that served as the capital while they were under Roman rule. Acts 11 describes the founding of the church there. I'm going to be reading from Acts 11, beginning with verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So you see, this church that was founded in Antioch included Gentiles. They were referred to as Hellenists. Um, there's no mention of them having to become Jews before they became Christians. Antioch was his base from which he traveled for his first missionary journey. Um, when he returned from this journey through southern Galatia, he returned to his base in Antioch. And it was here that Paul had to confront Peter. So stepping back to Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So let's think about the two characters in in this dialogue. You got Paul, who was originally Saul, He'd been one of the most zealous Jews there was. 
But then he encountered Christ on that road to Damascus and was converted and became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Now, Peter, Peter had been one of the leading disciples. He served under Jesus Christ directly for three years. He'd often been a spokesperson for them. And now he was one of the early church leaders. How controversial do you think it would be for Paul to confront him publicly? This is a difficult subject he's going to bring up. Now, I believe this occurred before the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts 15. Otherwise, this wouldn't have been a big issue because it had been settled at that point. Peter's, uh, he's called in this passage Cephas, that's his Aramaic name. He had come to visit in Antioch. At first, he had routine fellowship with Gentiles. He even ate with them. So you can think, well, maybe he even threw out the Jewish dietary laws. We don't know. Um, A strict Jew would not have eaten with, with a Gentile. And his support for the gospel of grace before this time had been very public. In fact, in last week's passage... In verse 9, it says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, that's Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul, had, I mean, Peter had approved of Paul's missionary work to the Gentiles. He had approved of this gospel of grace that Paul was preaching to them. But later, this group of Jews came. They're called the circumcision party by Paul. Um, It says they came from James, so that means they came from Jerusalem. They thought that before you could become a Christian a Gentile had to become a Jew. They had to follow the Jewish laws, including circumcision for men. They were attempting to add a works requirement to salvation for Gentiles. And Peter Peter is indirectly supporting them by avoiding fellowship with Gentiles. He may not have publicly said what they're doing is right, but our actions can speak louder than our words. If he broke his fellowship with Gentiles, people were going to think, well, it's because he's supportive of these Jews. Paul recognized the need to address this subject with Peter because he wanted to restore the biblical truth to these people that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is not a works requirement in there. This rebuke had to be public because Peter's actions were impacting others. He'd even led Barnabas astray 
Barnabas was described as this man of faith filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet he's struggling to know if works are required for salvation. Now, Paul begins by calling them out for their hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something that you're not. In Greek um, drama, they often used hypocrisy. Someone would even wear a mask and then try to speak and imitate a voice of someone else or even their actions. Typically, the actions of a hypocrite, they don't follow the message that they're proclaiming. In this instance, Peter had supported the gospel of grace, but his actions are being supportive of a works-based salvation. So in verse 14, Paul begins his rebuke of Peter. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul begins his rebuke by pointing out the inconsistency between Peter's actions and his faith. This is going to cause a very awkward conversation to occur. These Judaizers are probably stepping back. It's like, wait a minute. This guy is being critical of the Apostle Peter. So there's a pretty big conflict brewing here. Peter had just been fellowshipping with Gentiles, even eating their food, and now he's siding with these legalistic Jews who claim that circumcision was needed to be saved. Matthew 18 describes how we're supposed to address a conflict with another person, right? So first we're to go to that person with a private conversation. And then if they fail to repent, we we confront them with a witness to the discussion. If they still refuse to, to repent, you bring it before the whole church. So was Peter wrong to bring this up publicly? Okay. First of all, Matthew was probably written about 10 years after this letter was written. So eh, he, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to read it. But even if he knew that principle, I think he was justified in what he did for two different reasons. The first one I've mentioned already that he's having a bad influence on a lot of people. So it needed to be addressed more than just with him personally, privately. And the second reason is that you've got this whole group of Judaizers there with him. Those people were just as guilty as Peter was of promoting a workspace salvation. So I think Paul was justified in bringing this out publicly because of the extent of the influence and the number of folks that were involved in it. Now, Galatians doesn't mention 
how Peter responded to this rebuke. But I'm pretty confident that he responded graciously because of his role in the Jerusalem Council later on that's recorded in Acts 15. He was supportive at that point of the gospel of grace, that there was not a works requirement, that a Gentile did not have to become a a Jew before he could become a Christian. In Galatians 2, uh, verses 15 and 16, Paul reviews the true means for justification. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is pointing out that even Jews who strive to obey the law are never justified by works. See, the law, all it does, it reveals our need for a Savior. It shows us the sin in our lives but it doesn't provide a way of redemption. Belief that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that his death on the cross was for our sin, is what justifies us. As I mentioned earlier, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, grace is commonly defined as undeserved favor. Uh, We recently celebrated Father's Day. And yes, both my kids gave me gifts. It's always a lot of fun. But they didn't give gifts to just any father. They only gave gifts to me. So in a way, I had not earned, but deserved maybe. I don't know, however you want to think of it. I had earned that gift by being their father. So it really wasn't grace. You see, grace is totally undeserved. It can't be earned by by being a good father or by any other good works. It can't be purchased. It can't be inherited. Paul is defending the truth that salvation is totally by grace and that works are not necessary to earn God's favor. Galatians uh, 2, 17 and 18 address the question of licentiousness. That's a big word. So licentiousness is unrestrained or flagrant sin. So let me read those verses. It says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You see, if, if, if one is justified solely by grace apart from works, 
then you could claim that the gospel gives you freedom to sin. Freedom to sin as we please without any consequences. In fact, you could say, well, well, the more I sin, the more grace I'm going to receive. This would almost make Christ an advocate of sin. But Paul defiantly says, no, that is not the case. In Romans chapter 6, he addressed the same issue. And I'll read the first four verses there. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, salvation frees us from slavery to sin. It shouldn't be viewed as a license to sin. So what is the role of good works? Well, Paul mentioned that in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verses 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul clearly states in that Ephesians passage that salvation is by grace through faith and not by good works said if it was by good works, you could boast about it. But we can't boast about our salvation. Our salvation is a gift from God. And then he goes on to say that we are created to do good works. Those good works are to worship God. They're consistent with his plan, and they bring him glory. If God didn't have good works for us to do, the minute we're saved, he could take us to heaven. But he keeps us here to serve him, to do good works, to spread his word, to lead others to Christ by our example and our words. In Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20, he's going to explain the purpose of the law as well as introducing the new life that's available through faith in Jesus Christ. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the purpose of the law is to lead us to Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, the sent one that would redeem mankind. The law reveals our sin, and it reveals that that separates us from God. Exposure to the law shows us our need for a Savior. 
our need for someone to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be declared righteous, that we could be forgiven and have a right relationship with God. See, Jesus provided the perfect sacrifice for sin that God's justice demanded. When believers receive saving faith in Jesus Christ, before that, they were dead in their relationship with the law because it's unable to provide redemption. They're only alive through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can provide redemption from sin. When we pursue righteousness through the law and works, we're really pursuing a self-righteousness. We're trying to earn God's favor with our own behavior. This is doomed to failure because of what Paul wrote in, in Romans where he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, our attempts to earn God's favor with self-righteousness will always fall short. They're never enough. See, God's standard is perfection. Our only hope is through Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone can we have salvation. If you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please see one of the church leaders. They would love to, to explain the gospel to you better and to help you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The next passage in Roman, or I'm going to read is from Romans 3. It says, Now we know that wherever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's just another reminder of how no one is justified by obeying the law. The law reveals our sin, and God's going to hold everyone accountable for their sin. Fortunately for believers, Christ paid our sin debt in full. He redeemed us from that slavery to sin. The last verse in, in Galatians 2 is verse 21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I read a I, I like to read several different translations when I'm studying a passage. Uh, the New Living Translation of that verse I thought was just super easy to understand. It says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die.
Paul is emphasizing that salvation is by grace and not through the law. If we could achieve God's standard of righteousness, then there was no need for Christ to die on the cross. If one requires works for salvation, then you're saying that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't sufficient. Do you see the heresy in that? The heresy of saying that Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient? That is an essential belief. Well, I doubt any of us would state that, you know, the Jewish laws such as circumcision or dietary restrictions are are required for salvation. There are other works requirements that can creep in if we're not careful. Legalism is any attempt to earn or to add to the salvation that God has provided with works. An example that, that I experienced growing up, um, there were many of my friends that felt there was this obligation to, to go to church every week. You had to go to a service at some point, either Saturday or Sunday. And most of them liked to go to the Saturday night service. There was an early Saturday night service, and then they could stay out late Saturday night and party and sleep in on Sunday morning, but they fulfilled their obligation. Well, how foolish is that works requirement that, well, you have to attend every week? That's adding a work to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul clearly taught here and in other passages that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's several lessons that we can take away from this passage. Um, First of all, we all have times when hypocrisy can creep into our lives. I mean, we saw here that even the great apostle Peter had it crop up in his life. Now, it's important that we have someone who will hold us accountable when that happens. Someone who will speak truth to us, as Paul did with Peter. So who holds you accountable for your Christian walk? See, a good accountability partner will speak the truth. A biblical example is Nathan. He took the risk to confront David for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And that was a risky thing. David was the king and could have had him taken out. The second lesson is that other people are impacted when we speak with hypocrisy. In this example, even Barnabas, who was a man described as full of the Holy Spirit, was impacted 
by Peter's actions. Our behavior impacts other people. So how are you impacting others in the cause of Christ? Are you drawing them to Christ with your actions or are you pushing them away? When we act with hypocrisy, we can be pushing them away from Christ and I know that's not our intent. Finally, Paul displayed a steadfast commitment to truth. He was unwilling to compromise on this issue that salvation is by grace and not by works. He was willing to take a risk and address these Judaizers publicly. You say, oh, it's not that big a risk. Well, if you remember, on his first missionary journey in one of the cities, these same type of people drug him out of the city and stoned him and left him for dead. I think it's by God's grace that he lived through that. So he was taking a significant risk in addressing them. What risks are you willing to take to stand for truth? Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing the perfect sacrifice that satisfies your just requirements for redemption. Help each one of us to recognize the times when we are tempted to add self-righteous works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Father, guide us to boldly stand for the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, use this truth to transform each of us for your glory and our good. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.